I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's James Jacobs, and we're talking about the genius and tragic life that was Franz Schubert. He had a gift for melody few composers could attain, changed the world of songwriting, and he wrote over 1,500 works. We look at what sets his music apart from other composers, his most popular unfinished work, what he did for the trombone, and even how he ended up getting arrested in Vienna. Sometimes I forget Schubert died as young as he did at age 31 because he wrote over 1,500 works spanning art songs, symphonies, chamber music, piano music, stage works, and more. It's almost like, James, he is the Louvre Museum of composers. I feel like it would take an entire lifetime to appreciate his music. It is so amazing to think about his short lifespan, especially when you contrast that with other composers. He died two months before he turned 32, or he would have turned 32. And when you contrast that with Beethoven, say, uh, if Beethoven had died at the same age that Schubert had died, we would have only gotten the two symphonies. He, wow. We wouldn't have written the Eroica. We would have only gotten the three piano concertos and 20 uh, piano sonatas and and uh, even Mozart, uh, we wouldn't have gotten Cosi Flantute or the Requiem or Clarinet Concerto. And uh, But you do sort of get the feeling that these composers had an inkling of their lifespan even before they knew it. And, and so, you know, when you get someone uh, young and uh, in a hurry, as it were, and uh, Schubert definitely, even before he had any sort of inkling of the tragedy that awaited him, he felt like he was a guy in a hurry. In a hurry. And he wrote enough music uh, to definitely, I think, warrant that description. So Franz Schubert, born in Vienna on January 31st, 1797, the 12th child to a parish schoolmaster, and his mother was a housemaid before she was uh, married at age 19. He started learning piano from his brother, Ignaz, who was about 11 years older, and Franz is about six or seven at this time. But apparently, this young Franz quickly outpaced his brother Ignaz, who later said, I was amazed when Franz told me, a few months after we began, that he had no need of any further instruction from me, and that for the future he would make his own way. And in truth, his progress in a short period was so great that I was forced to acknowledge in him a master who had completely distanced and outstripped me and whom I despaired of overtaking. Just imagine, James, you're 17, 18, about to go on to your own professional music career, maybe, and this six-year-old next to you is saying, you know what, I don't need to learn any more from you. I'm well beyond you, so I'm just going to go do my own thing now, thanks. No, I mean, that's amazing to me. And again, when you compare that to other composers, I mean, he was at least as much of a prodigy. You know, if you compare composers before age 10, you know, I think Schubert was up there with Bach and Mozart. Uh, yeah. He was he was absolutely on pace uh, with that kind of genius, that kind of uh, uh, precociousness and, and the way that he absorbed musical knowledge. Yeah. And he's coming from a musical family. He also gets violin lessons from his father when he's about eight and also people outside of the family, a local organist who was apparently astonished with Schubert's abilities. He also picked up the viola around this time, uh, playing in a quartet with his brothers and his father. And he would become a, of course, prolific composer, but he wasn't quite the prodigy, I think, on a particular instrument. He became very well versed on a couple, but not like Mozart on the on the, the violin or something. 
Right, right. And um, obviously he was he must have been a very good keyboardist because yes. he wrote some very difficult music for the keyboard. And he also knew the keyboard. But yeah, he wasn't that kind of virtuoso. But uh, but another thing that I think that one of the things that differentiates him is uh, the fact that he this was a time when music was available to the working class and uh, and there's a sort of bourgeois aspect of the you know the idea that it's about you know a suburban school teacher uh, that's what you know his father was and that's what mm-hmm. he trained to be actually in his in his in his teens and uh, it's uh, so the he had his sights set slightly differently you know and sort of like instead of like oh I'm going to be a capellmeister for this church or for this count it's sort of like oh I'm going to conduct a student orchestra in the suburbs, you know, and that's, which is fine, you know, it's certainly, you know, more democratic that way. And when he's 11 years old in, in 1808, he gets enrolled at the Imperial Seminary through a scholarship for his singing voice. He's singing in the choir. He also joins the school orchestra playing in the second violin section. Also gets to study with Antonio Salieri a bit too. Uh, say what you want about Salieri. Salieri basically I mean, he discovered Schubert, you know, when Schubert was seven years old, he, uh, he said, this guy's got a great voice and I'm going to train him. And it was, you know, Salieri took him under his wing. You know, he trained him with the Vienna Choir Boys, institution that still exists all these centuries later. And uh, and Salieri, you know, if it weren't for Salieri, uh, uh, Schubert would certainly not have been able to afford to go to school, uh, go, you know, and have that, and certainly not been able to uh, rise to that level of, of fame. So, uh, yay Salieri, okay, everybody? Yay Salieri. <laughs> and there was another composer, too, that probably very unfamiliar for most people, unfamiliar to me, that was also um, maybe a push for Schubert, and that is Johann Rudolf Zumsteg, who wrote songs, and Schubert, I guess, became obsessed and and just enthralled with these songs, or as we call them in German, leader. Um, He was trying to learn them, play them, memorize them. I wonder if he would compose the over 600 songs or leader if it wasn't for this infatuation for this composer, Zumsteg. Well, also this had to do with the new aesthetic at the time when Music took on this sort of impressionistic idea that it could evoke images and Mm -hmm. and then certainly the idea that of marrying poetry and music and the influence of Zumsteg um, is, is certainly very important. And that's uh, and that's also important to note, you know, just like Yeseleri, uh, so many composers would not have been able to do what they do if it weren't for people that we've never heard of. Right. Yes. <laughs> and so we should definitely, um, you know, Zumsteg was definitely someone that we should have on our radar as a, as a giant in the history of music. And I'll try to put some video or some kind of links to him on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. Well, we can already look at some of his earliest surviving music. He's barely a teenager at age 14 in 1811, and he's writing quite a variety. We have his earliest surviving song. Of course, he wrote more than this beforehand, um, Hagers Klage, and it's also kind of long and well-developed as well. There is also the Octet for Winds, which... I kind of like it's fine. Um, it's unfinished, and he may have written that to commemorate his mother's death um, the following year. He also wrote uh, Salve Regina, a work for soprano um, and, and orchestra. Now, this piece and what we're hearing right now is a really great, I think, distillation of my point on this episode with, with Schubert, and that is whenever I listen to his music, a symphony, solo piano, song, chamber music, whatever, 
I'm always hearing it in a way that this can be reduced to just piano and voice, maybe another instrument. Even with the symphonies, I feel like this this could be played by just a couple people. I think Schubert is a very efficient composer. He's able to write in ways that are just um, that get to the point and carry you along. When another composer may need more instruments, more rhythm, more this or that, Schubert doesn't. Right. And it is so interesting to sort of explore the difference between composers when it comes to that. Like, you know, Mozart's music seems simple, but actually it doesn't reduce very well because he wrote it so specifically for those instruments. But, you know, somebody like Schubert, what he started with always was the melody. And if you have the melody, you have the the composition uh, a sort of transistorized form of the composition in miniature, and then it all branches out from there. And so the melodies are complete, and therefore he expands out from that. And so it can work. You can actually sing Schubert's works easier than you can sing pretty much any other composer who's major, you know, wrote symphonies. You know, I think, you know, because it's it just it just carries you along. And I think that's part of why it's it's makes it adaptable to different instruments and different combinations, you know, so that it could be chamber music or it could be solo piano music or orchestral music or, or whatever. But uh, and, and he had that quality from the very beginning. From the very beginning. And he also wrote his first symphony as well when he's 16 years old. So this is quite a variety. We already have song, choral music, a symphony, chamber music, and more. And all of that combined leads me to think, well, maybe Ignaz was correct. He did outpace him so quickly. He did advance so fast because of just all this variety that we hear in his compositions already. So what happens next for Schubert when he leaves this imperial seminary? It's 1813. He's 16 years old, pretty much, and I guess an adult at that time. He moves back home, but not to begin his music career. Actually, he studies a little bit with his father for teacher training to become a teacher. This sounds like it was kind of boring, not passionate for uh, Schubert. Well, in a way, this is the period that um, made Schubert determined to sort of leave all this behind and go to Vienna and make a name for himself, and that this is not the life that he wanted to be stuck in the suburbs and and teach because this was, yeah, he was pretty miserable. But he didn't, that didn't stop him from composing. He was constantly composing, even at that time. And he was still studying with Salieri for for a few years. And he was giving some private music lessons, basically just to get some money to buy manuscript paper and um, and things like that. But it's also at this time, I think, James, his composing really takes off in a hurry. He writes some of his most well-known songs, like Gretchen at the Spinning Wheel, Earl Koenig, and basically 150 other songs in a year and another symphony and more quartets and two masses he really takes off yeah and and these early songs are you know they they're fully formed i mean you know maybe the string quartets and 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 uh, symphonies are still works in progress or products of a work in progress mm-hmm. uh, but the you know his the songs that he wrote when he was 15 16 are still in the standard repertory of, of singers and of uh, the the earl king is um, it's, I mean, it's incredible. It's like a one-person monodrama, uh, you know, that it within, and it's so dramatic. And it's, um, you know, he later didn't have much of a, he tried and didn't quite make it with opera, but you don't really need an opera when you have something like The Earl King, which is an entire opera for one person and a piano in three minutes. It's just, it's as dramatic as anything. It's 
It really is. And I'm going to put video on the show notes page of this Earl King song because, well, for me, songs are how I was really introduced to Schubert's music in school. I would actually even play them in recitals on my instrument because I thought, you know, they're really great studies for phrasing, how you treat syllables, repeated words when you're not singing. How do you do that? How do you do that stuff? And I remember hearing Earl King for the first time. Because just the first measure on the piano, it's like, oh, my God, what happens next? Yeah. I, I have What happens next? And then what? And then what? And you're, it's just all the way through, and he's like 16, 17. Yeah. It's, uh, I, yeah. And it, it's amazing. It's, it's so dramatic and so, and so arresting. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, Mozart didn't write anything like that when he, when he was 16. No, no. <laughs> not, no not even Bach. And uh, no, it's, it's almost like he was born with this innate sense of theater. And uh, even though he wasn't a theater composer in the end, uh, he had this innate sense of what constituted uh, what the voice was capable of. Like he really understood. And that's, I mean, and that, I mean, you talked about how uh, Schubert didn't, wasn't a virtuoso at an instrument, but apparently as a boy soprano, he was a virtuoso. He, oh, yeah, he was that's right. a great singer. So that maybe that was really his instrument and something. And that's also makes him, sets him apart from, yeah. from many of the other composers. And I think it's this song leader style, how he's distilling things into just the parts that arrest you. I think this is what carries him into the rest of his his music for, you know, the rest of his life. When I was talking about how you can hear things, how, how it can be distilled down a symphony even to a singer and a piano or that um, – arrangement we were hearing earlier with clarinet, piano, and um, and soprano. So I think this made him super efficient, like I said, where other composers may need more instruments or rhythmic aspects. Schubert gets away with simplicity. And you hear this singing style. I can never get out of my head anymore with Schubert because, for instance, the piano trio number two, the second movement, it opens like so many of Schubert's works. The simplest, almost silly line on the piano and then the voice or here an instrument comes in it's so simple and then when the line flips from cello to piano the cello and violin are playing just what the piano was i mean it's almost like how he wrote so little without a note here or there the whole thing wouldn't even exist he's just taking away everything that's not necessary right and and again compare how he composes a movement in of that kind of form to some someone like beethoven like in beethoven you know you go through three minutes and you hear all these different uh little fragments of melodies little melodic cells you don't i mean you might hear a complete melody that's uh, you know maybe a few measures long but it's not really about that it's about this constant sort of war between different little melodic cells and they're one upping each other and there's different rhythmic permutations and schubert no it's there's a long melody that gets stated and then someone else states that melody and then and somehow he earns our patience somehow he earns he hypnotizes us to to stay with it and and listen to these long melodic lines and how and really listen to them so okay, you heard it the first time now hear it again with this other instrument now hear it again and it's interesting because it's it's not this cosmic war that you associate with Beethoven. It's uh, it's just it's a song. It just unfolds with these melodies, and it has its own internal logic. And it's 
really like no other composer I can I can think of. And and that piano trio number two is a great example. It's just it just it just carries you along these wings of melody. That's how you could introduce every Schubert piece. It's a song and it unfolds, you know, from there. So it's no surprise, as you can imagine, with Schubert writing over 600 of these and at this level, he really revolutionized songwriting, a leader, especially when it comes to song cycles. And that's something we've not actually talked about on this podcast before. A song cycle, that is a collection of songs that can be sung separately but are meant to be performed together and they have a a continuous narrative thread. Before Schubert, I think there were like two small examples of this. Actually, believe it or not, the person who invented the song cycle was Beethoven with On de Ferne Geliebte, you know, To Mm. the Immortal Beloved, when he was experimenting, actually around the same time, you know, it was around 1816, with, you know, being a romantic composer. And uh, so, but of course it, it makes sense for Beethoven because Beethoven, you know, he basically turned the idea of a song into a kind of symphonic form, you know, because it it created this narrative. And so, you know, and Beethoven created this 15-minute narrative out of these different songs that connected together. And Schubert, who revered Beethoven, basically seized upon that. And um, in several great, great song cycles that that are, are still unique and you know and other other composers wrote other song cycles too but uh, i don't i mean schubert's still are are the ones i mean it's brand new it's a brand new kind of thing with beethoven and he takes it from 15 minutes to like an hour long i mean it's approaching Mahler symphony length at an hour long of just voice and piano and the whole time it's just okay what's next what happens next and one of the big song cycles is Deventerizer, The Winter Journey. Just the title in my head alone conjures up images, and we start in a minor key. You can feel the cold. I can feel the snow crunching under my feet, maybe the bitter wind. The piano part is very economical, very efficient, as we said. And, well, it's very Schubert, isn't it, that it's unrequited love, sadness, and wandering. Absolutely. It's a, it's a cycle of 24 songs, and it starts off with this man, uh, young man, who obviously heartbroken in love, and he just goes, starts walking in the snowy uh, winter landscape, and we can hear him veering between despair and hope. Mm-hmm. Even in just the first song, you get elements of both as it goes between the major key and the minor key. And at one point, there's a there's one of the songs, the fifth song is their Lindenbaum about a tree. And he sits under the tree and he has memories of sitting under the tree being happily in love and carving his uh, his initials into the tree and, and her initials into the tree. And But of course, now it's you also hear the the piano part imitating the wind rustling the the dead branches you know so you, you get this evocation of you know this nostalgia for times when he was just again by himself and it's and it's all this loneliness and wandering and um and and by the time he wrote the uh, you know he had already received this diagnosis he knew that he didn't have long yeah and and he knew that he would probably never find happiness and love and that was in the any and he put all of that into this incredible piece. Yes. And it ends about as bleakly as anything, any work of art. But it doesn't have that 
it's not sardonic that way. It's just like you really feel like you could feel, as you said, you feel the cold. You feel the, mm-hmm. you know, the winter. Like in that last song where he's just listening to the hurdy gurdy man. Yeah. <laughs> and the it, nothing is more lonely than that song. He writes loneliness like uh, very few can. And going back a little bit in his life, I mean, talking about the year 1817, he's 20. We're already, you know, well more than half through his life. He starts to teach music again. His dad moves to a different position at a, at a new school. He moves in with a friend. And it's at this time he gets the first public performance of, uh, of a secular work of his, um, an overture. I guess that was well-received. And then in the summer, he was a music teacher for a wealthy count, you know, teaching piano and singing to, to the children. And so far, it seems like a relatively common story for composers. You know, he's writing more. He has a, a public performance of, a, of an orchestral work. He teaches at, at a wealthy estate. So far, it seems like um, well, a relatively common story. Yeah, and uh, when you and so by the time uh, Schubert's about twenty years old, there's really no clouds so far. I mean, yes, there is there is you know unpleasantness of having to work you know and all that sort of stuff, but really you you sort of thought, okay, this is a promising young man, and he's going to go on to a great, brilliant career, and and he's got all the talent, and he's got Vienna at his feet, and what's going to happen next? Yes, and we'll talk about the time Schubert was arrested right after this. Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music, is made possible by WETA Classical. Join us for the music and insightful commentary anytime, day, or night. You can stream the music online at wetaclassical.org or through the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. So maybe you've heard of the idea of Schubertiads, little get-togethers to play music by Schubert. This began in Schubert's time, of course, and it was great for him initially as he had been denied entry to a prestigious music circle previously. And this is how much of his music was played and experienced at this time, I think, at these um, Schubertiads. Yeah, there were salons and... They sound like so much fun with uh, people getting together. And yeah, it was, and Schubert, they were revolved around Schubert, though sometimes they included music by other composers, but it was definitely about celebrating this guy Schubert that they all knew was going to be the next big thing. And, um, and they would, you know, drink beer and, um, and, and do all sorts of different things from, from songs to chamber music and piano music and, uh, they had to sort of gather together in a little bit in secret because of some interesting extenuating circumstances, uh, political. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I think it's kind of funny in retrospect. I'm sure it wasn't at the time, but these Schubertiads became kind of a problem. He ended up getting arrested because Austrian police were a bit wary after the French Revolution. They would arrest young people meeting in groups, especially, I guess, artists. And one friend went to a jail for like a year, was kicked out of Vienna. Schubert was heavily reprimanded, I guess. And I Schubert wasn't quite the imposing figure, although revolutionaries can come in any form. Right. It, but... should be, it should be noted that Vienna in the 20s was sort of like America in the 1950s. There was, mm. we had the Red Scare, we had the, you know, House on American Activities, you know, the blacklists and, and all that. And it was sort of a similar time, you know, uh, the, I guess the equivalent of World War II would be the Napoleonic Wars. And um, it was a, not an easy time to be a young person, especially if 
as you mentioned, Schubert and his friends to be people with uh, who thought deeply about subjects and had uh, very strong political opinions and had very strong ways of expressing their opinions and and were still remembering the time before the wars when they could um, say whatever they pleased and now they can't and the culture was shifting and they weren't quite you know and it was a dangerous time. Yeah, and his nickname Schubert was a uh, Schwammerl, meaning like I guess a little plump or tubby little mushroom. So I can just I'm I'm just thinking in my head he gets arrested and do you have any aliases? You know, they have, I can imagine Schwammerl is written down for this you know um, imposing revolutionary Schubert. Amazing that both Beethoven and Schubert spend time in jail. It's, uh, it's... And you know Schubert thought of a song while he was in there. Oh, absolutely. And it's about this time Schubert is in his early 20s that he gets some of his works played at the prestigious Theater an der Wien, like some operas. And he wrote like 20 stage works, I think, in total, but none of them really worked out, did they? But he, he kept at it, but none of them worked out. Yeah, this was a hard—his early 20s were difficult for him um, in terms of trying—you know, he was transitioning— he knew where he was as a teenager and writing all his symphonies and songs and and sort of being an apprentice to the craft, as it were, and, you know, establishing himself. But now he was trying to make it, you know, in the big world. And he, and he kind of, it's sort of a battleground. He left so many works unfinished during those the first four years of his 20s. There was, he started and, and didn't complete so many operas and... Uh, and also other works too, as well as a couple of symphonies. Right, his symphony number no. eight is about this time as well. Yeah, it's, it's like the tail end of this period. Mm -hmm. The most famous unfinished work of all. Yeah, I really think so. He wrote two movements and he actually never heard this played. He only heard, I think, two of his early symphonies played and this, which would become one of his most enduring works, he never actually heard it. And I think it's one that really shows what I mean by him being an efficient composer. And when it requires moments of more extravagance and more, more complexity, it makes those moments shine even more. Absolutely. And when you hear those two movements, and you also hear his attempts to write a third movement, um, and you realize that he sort of composed himself into a corner, as it were. It's sort of like, where could he go from there? And without it sounding like, oh, now it's time for the scherzo. Now it's time, you know, and it's sort of, it's, a, it's sort of like by by writing these two movements that are so substantial and so satisfying, uh, he kind of, in a way, exposed the artifice and even kind of the absurdity of the symphonic form. It's sort of like, what else is needed? Is like You write what you need to write. And why do you need a finale or a scherzo unless there's a real reason for it? Mm -hmm. And so as a result, it's like, on the one hand, it's this extremely successful work artistically, but it's also the one that becomes sort of the head sort of like, okay, so where can music go from here? Where else can symphonic form go? And, and, and in fact, in Schubert's subsequent works, he tells us, he shows us. Yes. And this symphony as you might guess, would be unpublished. In fact, most of his music wasn't published and would be, for many of them, uh, discovered in years or even decades after his death. People were finding music tucked away in, like, cupboards and drawers of his. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was sort of, there was sort of a diaspora and <laughs> all over Europe in different people's homes, and it was, it was still being discovered. And in fact, I think the, the Unfinished Symphony was... Uh, 
wasn't even uncovered until the 1860s, you know, some 40 it was years. Yeah. Yeah. It's like 40 years after his death. I mean, and, uh, but, you know, as I said, it was a little bit of a battleground uh, for those four years. And mm-hmm. the Unfinished Symphony was part of that. But then um, his piano work that he wrote uh, shortly after that was really the thing that sort of got him out of that and defined what was to follow. Yeah, the Wanderer fantasy would become one of his most popular piano works. He wrote that in 1822. And, I mean, a, a broken record, right? I'm saying, when I hear this, I hear a singular idea. You can um, sing it or whatever. It's just interesting that I'm not listening or picking out maybe more complex or multiple counter lines at the same time. It's deceptively simple. I'm not thinking about those things for, for many years, really, until now when I'm trying to be more a little bit more critical about it. And even in the final movement, when it gets just really virtuosic, it's very clear, it's very laid out, it's not frantic. Yeah, the Wanderer fantasy is a, is a sort of quietly revolutionary work. Actually, it's not so quiet, but it's a, but he came up with this new way. He based it on a song of his called The Wanderer, which was one of his most popular songs at the time about someone, you know, typical Schubert uh, subject matters, a, a heartbroken young man who was lost and confused. And, um, and he took this song and he took the melody of the song and he wrote four different versions of it and they became the four themes of the four movements, the four, or really sections, I should say, not really movements, of the Wanderer fantasy and became, that became sort of the binding, the binder of, of this work, the, the connective tissue, as it were. And so, because they all have that theme in common, but they're all completely, have a completely different character, somewhat akin to the four movements of a symphony. And it's such a great metaphor for his life and at this time that he took this lonely song about wandering and turned it into this journey, you know, with different permutations, like the four seasons, you know, these four sections, and that's completely triumphant at the end. And um, and also to note that he wrote this work, this was one of the first works he wrote after he got that diagnosis from the doctor because he was, he noticed that his health was deteriorating and it's sort of like he, it, that sort of sharpened his focus, like, okay, this is what we're going to do now. And so, and this is when he gave up writing opera, sort of like, okay, so he's never going to, he's not going to do that. But uh, what he is going to do is write these long form works, which is not necessarily what you would expect uh, or even necessarily want. Uh, from a composer at that time. Nobody was asking for long symphonies and sonatas, you know, but he wrote them anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, He could have just written short piano pieces and songs for the rest of his life, but he he really wanted to emulate uh, Beethoven by writing these long-form works, and Wanderer Fantasy showed how he could do that, how he could marry his his melodic instincts with these long-form novelistic forms. And it's around... 1822 or 1823 or so, right, where he, that diagnosis you're talking about, I think originally, well, at first, at this time, he was, I guess, getting treatment for maybe syphilis. There was like, you know, you, you took mercury and things right, like that, right. which yeah, I yeah, can't imagine. Yeah, the, the the cures were worse than the disease in so, in so many ways. And uh, well, actually, pretty much everybody had syphilis at that point. It was, yeah. and, um, and, but again, whether you really died of that or whether you died of an attempted cure to it or you whether you died of an illness you got because that made you more susceptible and, and killed your immune system. You know, so it's just, you know, it's hard to, mm-hmm. you know, 
disentangle all of those. Oh, yeah. And kind of like I think how I was saying in his early teenage years, we see such a variety. We see that carry on through his his short life, really. He's writing for a variety of settings and situations, even when it's not working out like all those operas. He has variations for flute and piano, more songs, quartets, and so on. And and really, he, he also writes another work for an instrument that's not even popular, I guess, at this time, the arpeggione. He has a sonata for this instrument. And well, first off, for me again, what a leader song-like introduction to this. And this tells me that Schubert was open to new ideas and instruments, not necessarily the most popular thing. Yeah, we would not know what an arpeggio, we would, it would have completely forgotten it had it not been for that sonata that Schubert mm-hmm. wrote. Uh, someone tried to make a hybrid, a cross between a guitar and a cello, yeah. um, which immediately brings to mind, well, that's a little bit like a viola da gamba, but not quite. And, um, and it's sort of clunky, it's like, this, and you, when you hear one, you sort of feel like the sound can't make up its mind. <laughs> you know, like, and so um, you can see why it fell out of fashion. You can see why it fell out of fashion, and so it's been adopted. Um, the advantage of playing on the guitar is that it's it's easier to get all the notes, but the advantage of playing the cello is because you sort of feel like that's the tone quality you want. It's very difficult to play on the cello, but it's worth learning because it's such a beautiful piece. And it's just a testament to Schubert and his ability that we're talking about the sonata for an instrument over a century later that um, nobody cared about, you know, basically in the end that doesn't even exist. But the music is great and we're still trying to play it on instruments available to us now. So, I mean, we're getting into the final years here of of Schubert's life. 1825 sounds like it was a good one for him. He earned a little bit more money. He was able to live a little more comfortably. But at age 28, he already sees his health failing, as we've um, already mentioned. And sometimes the the treatment is or the cure is worse than than the disease itself. And this slow deteriorating health, it coincides I think even more development of him as a composer churning out really fantastic works like his string quartet number 14, uh, known as the Death and the Maiden, another quartet, uh, Piano Works, his great symphony in C major. It's almost like the music is pouring out of him like water out of a pitcher. I read that he even, writing several songs in one day, wrote one song at a tavern just on a break. Yeah, I think that as his health was deteriorating, he wanted to squeeze every drop of whatever he could out of himself while he still had time. And so, you know, even though he lived a short life, he wrote these long works, uh, like that symphony in C major you mentioned, which is an hour long, which was an hour long, purely instrumental symphony, which was completely unheard of at that time. And and nobody until it took Bruckner to really sort of take up where he left off. Decades, decades later. <laughs> you know, yeah. decades later. And, and also his string quartets, which were 45 minutes long, uh, like The Death of the Maiden, which is like The Wanderer Fantasy, a, a work, an instrumental work that was based on a song and uh, takes on some of the characteristics of that and sort of and develops the themes of, of, of the song, both in terms of the text and, and the music. And uh, it's interesting that as his strength is being depleted, he's also finding more strength as he keeps on going and writes these incredible works that you, that would be, I mean, it's amazing to, I can't even imagine writing one of them. He writes so many of them within a few months. There is a great book 
um, Daily Rituals, How Artists Work. I think that's the title. I'll put a link on the show notes page. But it's basically a collection of daily schedules and rituals of all kinds of artists. And Franz Schubert was included on one of those. Not a lot of information was gleamed to kind of recreate his days. But one of the things was, was he would compose from like six in the morning to one in the afternoon straight and he would say i would when i finish one work i begin the next like just chain writing this um this music out right and again i mean it's interesting because in terms of a time schedule that was similar to beethoven's schedule who also would start early in the morning but uh beethoven famously like labored over all of his works and had sketches and and would spend hours agonizing but but what's incredible about these these Schubert works is that, and this is in how he's a little bit more like Mozart. It just poured out of him, and uh, he you sort of get the even though they have incredible internal logic mm-hmm. that and it flows. You know, he didn't he didn't sweat it in the same sort of way. Like he wasn't engaging, you know, his frontal lobe so much. He was just like it was just <laughs> it was just this these melodies pouring out of him, and it worked because he had that grounding of that training and 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 he knew what he wanted to get out of these different forms he you know he knew the string quartet he knew mm-hmm. a piano he knew songs and uh, and you can feel that in every work and something that actually I did not know until basically now is that in March 1828 just months before he would die he would give his only public concert of his own music i think with such a catalog of works and the legacy he would leave it's just hard to believe that he would just, well, have one of those concerts in his life. And in the months, really, just before he would die, that November 1828, he wrote his cello quintet. And James, I think this is fantastic. As a tuba player, I can see why a cellist would love this. It's a departure from some of the quintets we see from other composers who add an extra violin or maybe an extra viola to a quartet to make a quintet. But adding the cello, which is what Schubert does, it gives so much more opportunity for color, for layering when you have this extra low voice. When you have that higher instrument added, it kind of flips the sound pyramid too much. Right. And just to clarify, this is a quintet for two violins, viola, and two cellos. Mm -hmm. And so the way Schubert uses the two cellos is really very unlike the way that earlier composers had used, say, the extra viola um, or a double bass. And so sometimes the cellos would play in unison or sometimes they would play, like, for example, there's a part near the beginning of the first movement where you hear the the two cellos on the bottom creating this deep bass line that creates an almost orchestral texture. And then the second theme of the first movement is this lovely duet for two cellos, which is, you know, sort of unprecedented in music, really, to sort of like, you know, to have this idea of a cello duet in a piece of chamber music. And then in the third movement, he's able to do things, I mean, second movement, he's able to do things where the cello joins the second violin viol, and viola as this three-part texture that yeah, creates this, this sort of 
blanket of sound, you know, and the, the first violin sings over that, and the second cello has this pizzicato, this, this plucked line that is the bass line. And so there, there's so many different uh, permutations of those five instruments that gives you uh, such a variety of textures. And so it's actually quite, uh, it makes a lot of sense to have that, that second cello. So this was in 1828, and um, as you mentioned, you know he had done that concert earlier. And uh, again, it's it's um, it's sad that a lot of these composers, you know, finally get some success yes. just before they're about to die. Just like Mozart, you know, finally had a hit in Magic Flute, and then he died, and mm-hmm. and Schubert finally had a hit with his concert, and it looked like things were promising for him. And and uh, but but no, uh, he just got sicker and sicker and his, and his body was was deteriorating and sometimes you know he was he would write with one hand while sort of like holding together parts of his body with the other it was awful it was absolutely awful people talk about watching him write in in taverns and so forth i mean he was and and he would go back and forth sometimes he would take he would still take long walks and mm-hmm. it was hard to tell but then uh in november it it he went to his what turned out to be his deathbed and pass away on November 19th uh, as with typhoid fever. Just a few days before he died, he uh, a few uh, friends of his, a string quartet, came to play one of Beethoven's last works, the string quartet in C-sharp minor, uh, number 14, an incredible work. And it's just so touching to me to think of Schubert being able to listen to this incredible work. And apparently he got so excited, he was he would move around in his bed. And, and I can, you know, understand that because it's such an amazing work. And he was, you know, a fan to the end. And, and we can just imagine how that would have inspired, inspired Schubert and that he would want to hear this brand new work. And uh, he visited uh, Beethoven's graveyard and requested to be buried near him, and he got that request. He got his wish, and you know he was also a pallbearer for Beethoven in, in Beethoven's funeral. So, so by the time he died, he was a full, you know, he was fully accepted as a member of the Viennese Musical Society. You know, he had gone from being this sort of bohemian, you know, rebel just yeah. a few years before, you know, who's rested. So, I mean, he really was on his way to being, to inheriting that, inheriting that mantle and he never got, got to. And, and apparently Beethoven, you know, while he was on his own deathbed, finally got a chance to look at some of Schubert's works and said, okay, this guy, this guy's a genius. And, you know, and he sort of regretted that he couldn't do more for for uh, Schubert, yeah. you know, but he had his own issues. Well, it's just something to see Beethoven have this admiration for Schubert and Schubert for for Beethoven and on their deathbeds, thinking about the 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 genius of the other. And yeah, he was the pallbearer just a year before for Beethoven, and then he would be laid to rest, as you said, right next to him. And his legacy, Franz Schubert, it would unfold in the coming decades as his music would continue to be discovered, things getting published. I also think he was one of the first composers to actually write interesting parts for a trombone in a symphony. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean Beethoven gets the gets the credit because he you know he put yeah he was the first to put trombones in a symphony but he didn't write it very good though. But yeah, I mean Schubert was the first person who actually knew how to use trombones. Yeah. I think
with that, I think he was, well, he has a special place in my heart for that. And of course, the hundreds of leader that he composed and the song cycles that were still an inspiration, still just, you can't mention leader without talking about Schubert. Schubert would have written wonderful tuba music. It's really too bad. Mm, yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I think you he, he think he would have really gotten that instrument. And now it's time to read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. Conan in Space gave us five stars on Apple Podcasts and said, While a teenager, as with so many of my generation, I suspect, my introduction to all genres of classical music was by means of Kubrick's Space Odyssey, a unique contribution to film culture. Regardless of my later interests, I have always loved this music. Similarly, this podcast is unique in that it explores and explains classical music's DNA. It's a history lesson, a sampling for the curious, and a form of meditation. Thanks to all concerned. And thank you so much, Conan and Space. And I understand, James, Kubrick's Space Odyssey is something special for you, too. Oh, absolutely. Well, it was... Well, really, it's all about my older brother, because I was six, and my older brother, he was six years older, and uh, so... So I just remember, it was, you know, he saw 2001 when it first came out, and and then he went out and bought what he thought was a soundtrack to 2001, but actually it was just a, it was actually just a recording of Strauss's also struck Zarathustra that was used in, in 2001, and the there was sort of misleading cover art, but it was good because then he started listening, he listened to the entire piece, mm-hmm. and I would be there because. I followed my brother around right. and while well, he was listening to all his music. And so that's the piece that turned him onto classical music. And therefore, it was also the piece that turned me onto classical music. So, wow. um, full circle. And uh, yeah, all because of Stanley Kubrick and, you know, and, and those apes and those bones. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much, James, for talking with me about all things Franz Schubert. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> 